continuing in our study this morning in the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. And as you do, I will just introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And it's a privilege and a joy for me to be continuing to, to preach through the Gospel of Mark. And so we've made our way, slowly and surely, we've made our way down to verses 14 and 15. And we'll pick up this morning there and continue our study. So it's been a unique time for us to just take our our time and walk through. I want to encourage you to see this. Verses 1 through 13 really have been the prologue of this book. And Mark, in his hurried, out-of-breath fashion, has got to verse 14 as fast as he could. He told us exactly what we needed to know to get to verse 14. So what he's shared in the first 13 chapter, the first 13 verses rather, are not arbitrary. They're not just random facts, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark has offered these to us as a foundation for what we'll read in verses 14 and 15 and following. And so keep that in mind as you look to the text this morning, specifically, as I said, in verses 14 and 15. And so let's read the scriptures this morning. It says in verse 14, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we ask just a blessing on your word this morning. We pray that you would be seen clearly, Jesus, as we lift you in this text high this morning. We pray that the light, Holy Spirit, that you shine abroad would reflect throughout this room as light does a diamond, and we would see the glorious truths of Jesus this morning. We rely on you holy, Jesus. We ask them in your name. Amen. And so as I said, the prologue has ended, and here Mark is offering an introductory statement about the ministry of Jesus. So we've pointed to it earlier in our series, but Mark 10.45 is kind of seen by many as the, 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 the thesis statement of Jesus' ministry. And while I would agree that that is true, it's also said similarly of verses 14 and 15 here in chapter 1, that this is the introductory statement. And so if you can understand Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that you'll be doing very well. And so keep these two things in mind. As we come to this text this morning, I want to offer this to you. What, what do I think, what do I see in this text that I believe that the Lord is leading us to see this morning, corporately? It's this, that proclaiming the gospel of God is the greatest calling one can have on their life, and it supersedes all circumstances. Proclaiming the gospel of God is the greatest calling one can have on their life, and it supersedes all circumstances. All right, so where do you see that in the text? Well, we'll get to there, to there shortly. But I want to give you also three larger sub-points. So there's many points this morning, but I want to give you three larger sub-points that will, again, act as signposts along the way. Smaller truths that support the greater truth. And one of them is this, that persecution is inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. If you're a Christian here this morning... You will not make it through your Christian life without facing persecution on some level. It's coming. That sounds pretty exciting to hear on the Lord's Day morn. As we gather and the sun is shining and the the temperature is rising. The clouds are racing away. 
But yes, that's a truth that we need to know this morning, that persecution is inevitable. Move from there to see that God is sovereign over time. That God is sovereign over time. He's sovereign over timing. And the things that happen and the way that they happen and at just the right time that they happen are in fact just the right time because God is sovereign over all time. We'll see in the text that we might come to the conclusion, hey, wouldn't it be a better time if this would have happened here or there and not at this particular time? And yet we see that God is sovereign over all time. And as, they, as things come to pass, he's not only aware, but he's in control. And lastly, we'll focus in on this idea that the kingdom is now. The kingdom is now. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, is now. And in another sense, it's not now, it's not yet. But it is, in fact, now. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So we have two verses to walk through. We'll see these truths here lifted out of the text this morning. Let's begin in verse 14. It says, Now... After John was arrested. If you have a history or a background in church, you might just race through verses 14 and 15. There's a real temptation to do that. There's a tendency to do that. We see words like gospel, kingdom, repentance, believe. You know, these are words that are, uh, in a sense, repetitive. And they can just be like, become just background noise, white noise in a sense, or some other noise. When we get to that word arrest, doesn't it kind of, in your humanness, in your sinfulness, doesn't it kind of just pique your interest and think, oh no, somebody got arrested. Well, John, he is arrested. When we read that, it kind of wakes us up and it shakes us in a sense. It doesn't really tell us in here in Mark, he doesn't give us the, the benefit of knowing exactly why John the Baptist is arrested. And he does address it in a few chapters and later on we'll get to that. But I, I do want to just share with you a, a brief passage from the book of Matthew, chapter 14. Because the gospel writer Matthew, he does give us a little bit more background as to why John was arrested. And I don't mean to correct Mark this morning. I think it's perfectly fine. But I think it would be helpful for us to know why he was arrested. And so it says in Matthew, chapter 14, verses 3 to 5, it says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. His brother Philip's wife. Why would he do that for his brother Philip's wife? Well, here's why. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. What was taking place here? Herod had, his, had been sleeping with and had taken his brother's wife. And he says, John says to this issue, this public issue, he addresses it. He, he calls out Herod and he says, it's not lawful for you to have her. Speaking of Herod, it says, And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And so John's arrested because he speaks out against Herod's immoral marriage. In case you're confused, I want to just give you a little bit of uh, uh, some clarity on who Herod is. Maybe you're like, man, this Herod, does he ever die? He's just all over the place. Well, here's why. Because Herod is a similar term to Caesar. There are lots of Herods, and so I want to give you just a a brief uh, 13,000-foot overview of the Herodian dynasty. And so first you had Herod the Great. Herod the Great rules uh, over Judah at the time of Jesus' birth. 
Herod the Great has found a, a, some, the, the, a little bit of information is found about him in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. We see a little bit to his tendencies and his proclivities as a ruler when he hears that Jesus is born king of the Jews. That's the first Herod that we learn about. The second Herod is this, Herod Archelaus. He's the oldest son of Herod the Great. And so Herod the Great, the, 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 the one who rules over the time of Jesus' birth, he has one son, he has many sons, but one particular son, his oldest, is Herod Archelaus. And he is the Herod when Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus actually leave Egypt and return back to Judea. So that's the oldest son of Herod. And then you have Herod Philip. He's another son of Herod the Great. And his, uh, and his, his wife is Herodias. Herodias. Herodias is... Uh, the woman that was named in that passage in Matthew that we just read a moment ago, the wife of Philip. But then we read of Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, he's the youngest son of Herod the Great, and he is the king that we read about in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He, the youngest son of Herod the Great, is the one who has John the Baptist arrested. And what does this passage tell? There's, by the way, there's two other Herods as well, just for your fun and for your information. I'll, I'll share this. You also have Herod Agrippa I, and he's the, great, or sorry, he's the grandson of Herod the Great, and he's the one that killed the Apostle James. And then you also have Herod Agrippa II, Agrippa and he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, and he's the one to whom Paul spoke, and he said, almost you've persuaded me to become a Christian. And so that's a little bit of the overview of of the Herodian dynasty, if you will. But to this man, Herod Antipas, the one who had taken his brother Philip's wife as his own, John speaks out against him, not in some aggressive way, not in some sinful way, as if he's trying to to pull him down and lift himself up, saying, Herod, you must decrease and I must increase in some sinful, selfish way. No, he's speaking the truth. And this man, this leader even then of God's people in some way, in some fashion, is walking in outright sin. So what does John do? He calls to him and he says, repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Eventually, John is killed. He's he's martyred. He faces the, the height of persecution there at the hands of Herod and Herodias and their evil daughter. John knew what persecution was like. Remember the recipients of the book of Mark, the initial recipients, those Roman Christians, they also knew in the first century what it was like to face persecution. So I think it's timely that we look at this text At this point in time, as Americans in the 21st century, why? Because we're being arrested? Well, not so much. We don't face arrest like many of our brothers and sisters and forefathers have. And yet when we speak to issues of same-sex marriage and how it's not a marriage at all, when we speak of the murder of the pre-born, when we speak of gender confusion and how... God has made them male and female. Clearly, Jesus has spoken this. 
And it's demonstrated in the Old Testament. When we speak to these areas, what happens? We may not be arrested in this day and age, but at the same time, we face persecution. You may have heard of the call-out culture that is prevalent in our day and age. It's also known as the outrage culture, and it's a form of public humiliation or shaming that aims to hold individuals or groups accountable for their actions or their perceived actions, if at all they are perceived to be offensive. This calling out or this outrage culture usually is seen in social media, and so if you're not on social media, maybe you'll, you'll face less persecution, but I, I doubt you'll be that isolated or insulated, I should say. A variant of this call-out culture or outrage culture is this cancel culture. The cancel culture, which describes a, a form of boycotting somebody for similar reasons. Usually a celebrity, somebody who's shared some type of a questionable statement on their social media platform. Maybe it's a controversial opinion. But whatever it is, if they're perceived to be offensive or belittling in any way, they can be what is called canceled. They're called to be abandoned by their followers or their supporters. And oftentimes this leads to a decline in a celebrity's income or way of life. The career can be crushed by this. And many times we might say, well, it's for good reasons, but at the same time, many times it's not. And Christians all around the world, all around the U.S. specifically, are facing the dangers and the persecution of the call-out culture, or the canceling culture. You may have heard of Fixer Upper, the, the TV show, The Gains. Just as one example, they're called out because they attend a church. Not because they've said anything, not because they've posted some type of a tweet that could be interpreted to be offensive, and, and no doubt they believe some things that would no doubt be considered offensive. They haven't made those statements for themselves. Not blatantly, but somebody had delved into their own uh, personal lives and found out that they attend a church. And they began to dig a little further and find out, well, what does this church believe? And they find out what the pastor believes. And surprisingly, that pastor, their pastor, believes in what the Bible teaches about marriage. What the Bible teaches about gender. And although they had done nothing, they had said nothing, these things were brought to light. And what's happened Society has been called upon to effectively cancel them. That's not news for many of you. You've experienced this in some form or fashion. If you're on social media, you see it. But it doesn't just happen in social media. It happens in our places of business. It happens on our streets. It happens in our neighborhoods. It happens in our city hall meetings. This canceling. It's a form of persecution. And John knew it all too well. As we face persecution, as we face this cancel culture, I want to provide a warning and an encouragement to my brothers and sisters this morning. And that is this. Notice that John did not change the message because the recipients wouldn't like it. Did you notice, do you notice that? Did John know that Herod wouldn't appreciate and Herodias would not appreciate what the, what the Lord had to say about his false marriage, his fornication, his adultery? Yes, of course he knew it. And what did he do? He shared the truths anyway. 
There's a temptation and a danger in our day and age to change what the Lord has to say, what he has clearly given to us to be as, as, as gospel, as a command. And there's a tendency, and yet we as the people of God have to allow the Lord to rule and reign. What he has given us to speak as his messengers, we must be faithful to speak. So John is arrested. And if we're honest, we'll admit that this part makes us a little bit sad. Because if, if you're aware, you know that John the Baptist, this guy who comes onto the scene with blazing fury, exits quickly. Not much more will be said about John the Baptist. That's a little sad. He's an interesting guy. He's the fun guy at the party. He's a little wild. He dresses goofy and he has some, some weird dietary things that he, uh, he abides by. You know, locust and wild honey. But he's kind of the life of the party. You never know what he's going to say. And all of a sudden he's just gone. John's nice enough. You might even think if you're sentimental. How can, how can this story even go on with John off the scene? Shouldn't we stop and, and take a moment and just recognize John and Maybe have a party, a going away party for him and and think of all the great things he's contributed to the Lord's work here. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't take place, and here's why. Because it's not about John. It's not about John. The book of Mark is not a story about this crazy guy living in the wilderness who loved the word of God and came as a messenger. It's 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 not the point. John says of himself, he says that I must... What? Decrease, and he must increase. You see, John saw himself for who he really was. He was a road sign pointing others to Jesus. And in the same way, you, Christian, this morning, you're just another road sign along the way. Hopefully, you too are pointing to the gospel of God in the person of Jesus. I hope that you see that as your goal in life. hope you see that as your point, as your calling. While others maybe larger and closer to the road than you, you still are a road sign as John pointing others to Jesus. And you must decrease in the lives of others and Jesus must increase. It's been said that the greatest privilege that you can have as a Christian is to live your life, to in some form or fashion preach the gospel and then to die and be forgotten. And this is the story of John. This should be our story as well, that we die and be forgotten, but that Jesus Christ not be forgotten. So in the life of John, what do we see? We see that persecution is inevitable. Persecution is inevitable. When we, as the messengers of Jesus Christ, preach his message, we will be persecuted. Jesus said, they hate you, but not because of you. They hate you because they hated me first. The message that they hate is my message. So in this world, you will have persecution. It is coming. And all of Satan's efforts that he has launched against Jesus himself have also been launched against we who are part of the kingdom of God. Persecution is coming. You're not too good for it. This life is not about you. Our mission is not ours. It's not our will. It's God's. It's given to us. You might say of this timing, you might say, hold up, Jesus, things are getting real right now. 
They're getting really real. John was just arrested, Jesus. Why are you just now? Why are you, why are you now going to Galilee? By the way, who rules Galilee? Herod, the one who just arrested John. Jesus had some, some semblance of, of safety in areas like Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Why? Because there was so much political unrest there. People stirring up things that there are a dime a dozen. And yet, John, where is he speaking from? The wilderness. And where does Jesus go from? The wilderness. And he makes his way out, up, I should say, to Galilee. But you might say, is this is... Is this really the right time? Jesus. You see, there are times when, when, when Christians seem to be able to, all we be able to, or able to hear when we read a passage like this is that John is arrested and it, it seems to cripple us because of the fear, thinking it might happen to us. When John goes and, and hears of Lazarus who's passed away, what does he do? He waits a minute. And then he gets his crew together and he says, hey, we're going to go. We're going to go visit Lazarus. And the disciples say, are we really going to go? You know, if we go, we're going to die. And Jesus says, let's go. And the disciples look at each other and they say, well, we might as well. We might as well go. Let's go with him and follow him. We're going to die too. He's going to die. Let's go die with him, right? Jesus has never been afraid of danger. Persecution is inevitable. Jesus was never running from death. He came to this earth to die. And we as disciples, we walk in his footsteps inviting, in a sense, the persecution that will come. Not asking for more, not stirring the pot, but preaching the clear gospel that our Lord has given to us. There will be times when we'll be tempted to cripple under the persecution, to change our story, to change the, the lines that we're to, be, that we're to, that we're to share and to preach. And when Jesus hears that John has been arrested, what does he do? Well, he goes and preaches. He gets up just like normal. He goes and he preaches just another sermon. And that other sermon is calling people again. Just as John did to Herod, he calls people to repent and to believe. It's the same message that John was preaching. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. So there's a great irony present in the news narrative this morning. A great irony. Christians share what God has said is true out of love, and in return we're labeled as bigots and haters. When in fact, true for of true Christians, the opposite is true. So often the most loving thing that we can do for somebody is to tell them a truth that is painful. Don't you know that? You see that and sense that in your own life. It's one of the things that we have to do as adults, right? Whether it be in our, our, our own homes whether it be in our place of business, speaking the truth to others is oftentimes one of the most painful things that we can do for somebody. And yet, it is so often one of the most loving things that we can do. If we're not accused of being bigots and haters, we're accused of hypocrisy. We've all broken God's commands. One area we could say is the area of sexuality. We've all broken commands there. Even your pastor this morning. I, but I... I'm not here to tell a, a gospel that I have created. I'm not here to share a message that I've concocted. I'm here to share exactly what the Lord has given to me. And what Jesus preached here, I proclaim a message this morning that calls all to repent and turn from our sin and to believe the gospel. 
And I'll be the first to admit there's a level of hypocrisy that's present in the church today. There is truly, sadly, a level of hypocrisy. And I don't mean to say in Hagerstown Church, but collectively, universally, there is hypocrisy present. In the sense where we say one, is, one thing is sin and we imbibe in it, or we create levels in sin, and we say these levels of sin, these areas of sin are acceptable and these are not. And while it doesn't fundamentally change the truth that is found in the message of the gospel, the, the communication is often distorted. It confuses the listeners when we say things like that. When we create levels within sin and we say this type of sin is acceptable and okay, but this type of sin is not. John's message that he preached was that all should repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' message, as we'll see in verse 15, is that all should repent and believe the gospel. So enough of saying that gossip is okay, but homosexuality is not. And I don't mean to say turn both of those on their heads. Both of them are sins. We've not been given the right to say what is worse than another or acceptable while the other is not. We don't bear that responsibility. It's not ours to to conform and to shape and to transform. All sin should be repented of. We hate the fact that there are unborn babies that are murdered in the safest place in the world, at least it should be, and yet at the same time we use our words behind other people's backs to tear them down and to stab them. And this type of murder that Jesus speaks of is acceptable in the church and in our culture. We imbibe and participate in the cancel culture in heinous ways, and yet we hate to see a life taken in other ways. And Jesus speaks of gossip as he does of abortion, and he says, I hate it, and you should repent from it and believe the gospel. And so all sin should be repented of. Oftentimes the church has gathered around what they think is the cross. And from that vantage point, we begin to lob stones at those who we call sinners. And in reality, what we're clinging to in that moment is a pseudo-culturally Christian gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's not good news at all. It's some form or semblance of it, which actually makes a mock of it. So in that sense, it is vain hypocrisy. Church, our sin is just as bad as anybody else's sin. And our sin needs to be repented of just as bad as anybody else's sin, though it may be different. And this is why it's difficult, one of the reasons why it is difficult for an unbelieving world to believe and to understand. In a practical sense, we contribute to the blinding of the world by our tainted message that God has called us to share. And so Jesus calls us all to turn from our sins. Now, jumping back into it, it says, now after John was arrested. Now, it's a chronological word. It's it's telling us of a a time, of a place in time. He's trying to locate it, and it's not some arbitrary locator like, oh, just randomly, hey, by the way, there was a sale on whatever at wherever, and then Jesus started preaching the gospel. No, that's not, this is not arbitrary. This is a, there's a point as to why the Holy Spirit has led Mark to say, after John was arrested. You see, Jesus proclaimed the same message that John proclaimed, and it's the same one, remember, that got him arrested. 
And so Jesus is, is holding up for us our main point, and that's this, that proclaiming the gospel of God is the greatest calling that anyone can have on their life, and that it supersedes all circumstances, regardless of what Jesus would face there in Galilee. Regardless, he presses on, and what does he do? He proclaims the gospel. Regardless of the fact that he may be canceled, that he may be arrested, that he may lose followers, what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel. Listen, when all you can see is pain and loss that you've faced in this life, Jesus reminds us that this life is passing. Paul reminds us that this life is short. The, the pain that we go through, it's short and momentary. Although it seems as though it lasts forever, it doesn't. It's all we know, but it's not all we will know. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. What does he say? He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that you're blessed for righteousness' sake? If you're persecuted? Or do we look at persecution as if it's some type of a curse? The absence of God in our lives, maybe? Here, Jesus reminds us that we're blessed. He goes on to say, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Well, this is difficult for us to understand. No, it's not. We know why that happens. We know how it happens. We can see it. What does he tell us to do? What is Jesus, our Savior, what does he say? Well, we're to rejoice. We're to be glad. Why? Because our reward is in heaven, and it is great. He reminds us, you stand in a long line if you suffer persecution. If you have been had evil spoken about you falsely on his account, he reminds you that you stand in a long line brothers and sisters who have gone before you, and he reminds you that this truly is a blessing. Remember, he doesn't say, your reward is here in the kingdom of earth. What does he say? Great is your reward in heaven, he says. It's it's great in heaven. goes on to say in that same passage he gives us this picture of a, a light being being or a lamp being lit and, and and set under a basket he says no nobody would do that they would light that lamp for what purpose to give light to those in the house and then he transfers using that same idea of light he transfers to a city set on a hill have you ever come to a mountain as you come to that mountain you can look and all you can see is darkness on the mountain but on the other side as your as the sun is set you can see a glow in the clouds. And you think, what is that? Maybe you're, a, maybe you're some kind of a superstitious person, or maybe you're, a, uh, a, 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 maybe you're always afraid of the next conspiracy theory, and you're thinking, well, maybe this is like Area 51 stuff, and then you actually you, you crest the top of the hill and you look, and it's a city. It's a city, and, and with the way that the clouds are low across that city... It's transferring the light into the sky in a beautiful way, in an uncanny, un- uncanny and neat way. You see in that instance what Jesus is talking about, that you cannot hide the light of a city. If it's on a hill, it will be seen by all. And Christian, this morning, 
One reason why it is so difficult for us to avoid persecution is because if we truly are a people of God with a light of Jesus in our hearts, it will shine abroad. and It will be seen as a city on a hill is seen. So Jesus, finally arrested and crucified at the end of at the book of Mark, he faced persecution, but yet unlike John, what does he do? He rises from the grave. And the disciples, they see him. The apostles, they, they see him and they follow him. They spend quite a bit of time with him and their vigor is multiplied and they couldn't be silent and they go out and guess what happens? They preach what they know and what, what do the Jews attempt to do? Cancel them. Order them in the book of Acts several times. Don't speak of what you know. Don't speak of what you have seen. And they say, well, what else can we do? How can we cover this light that's shining out of us? How can we stop it? We can't. And they don't. They're unable to be canceled. Regardless of the outrage culture that was present in that day, they weren't able to be stopped. Here we gather this morning in a practical way. We can point to the work that God had done in their lives. Is that light, a contagious way, just spread and shone abroad. So persecution is coming. It's always been a part of the Christian story, and it won't stop us. And as we think of persecution, I want to encourage you again to think of it as a privilege that we have. That we truly are blessed to stand in that same line as the apostles and the martyrs do that have gone on before us. Jesus comes to Galilee, it says in verse 14. Remember, this is God in the flesh. Verse, four, verse 1, it, he, this is Jesus, the Messiah. He, this is Jesus, the Son of God. This is the same one of whom the Father spoke from heaven at the baptism, and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And we saw the Trinity clearly displayed, the Godhead. This is Jesus. And where does he go? He goes to Galilee. Where is Jesus from? He's from Nazareth of Galilee. This is Jesus' hometown region, in a sense. And what does he go there doing? He goes there proclaiming the gospel of God. To proclaim is the same word as preach. So he's preaching the gospel of God. People say Jesus is a carpenter. Well, he's got, he's got some background in carpentry work, but here I see Jesus. He's a preacher. He's preaching. And we're a part of this as well. We are following in his footsteps and called to proclaim and to preach. For the past few weeks, we've been reading and quoting a verse together at the end of our services. And we say, we ask this question from the book of Romans, how shall they hear without a preacher? And if you're like me as a seven-year-old boy, you're like, yeah, how are they going to hear unless my preacher goes and tells them? That's not what it's saying. How will they hear unless somebody is proclaiming? This is what Jesus is doing. He's proclaiming the good news of God. He's preaching the good news of God. We've spent quite a bit of time talking about the gospel and the good news. This is a little bit of a unique phrasing here. It says the gospel of God. It's not a different gospel. There's only one gospel. But why does it say the gospel of God? Mark's drawing attention to the fact that this is a gospel that what comes from God. If you think about a child maybe on your street, comes to you and says, 
Mr. Josh, I've got good news for you. You might think of this kid who doesn't have much to his name. Maybe a pack of, half-eaten pack of bubble gum, a couple baseball cards, an old rusty huffy bike. What can he offer to you? What good news can he really give to you? But if somebody with much more power and much more affluence comes to you and says, I've got good news for you. In that moment, you recognize that the good news of that benefactor, that affluent person, possibly might be better than that of that child who has very little to offer you. That's such a weak illustration, but if you think about the fact that God is coming to us and his messenger is coming rather and saying, I have good news. It's good news from God. What could be greater than that? There's nothing with more potential than good news from God. And if you're like me, you love receiving good news, especially with those, that good news from people that can truly help. So that's what Jesus is proclaiming. He's preaching a good news from God. If you're in your sins this morning, which if you're apart from Christ, you are in your sin. What good news can be given to you from God? There's no good news, but only bad news. If you're still in your sins. And yet Jesus comes with a message that says, God has good news for you. I want you to notice, too, that Jesus is speaking not a new message, not a new gospel. But he's right in line with the forerunner. He's right in line with John the Baptist. You see, remember, John's arrest is mentioned. Why? It's to indicate the time that had come. It was time now for Jesus to act. The time had come. Look at verse 15. It and saying, what was Jesus saying? He come to Galilee and saying, the time is fulfilled. In other words, the appointed time has come. Who knows when it's the right time? Only God. Only God. The statement of the, the, the time being fulfilled, think of an hourglass. With exactly the right amount of sands, of sand I should say, in that hourglass and it's turned up and when the time, or when the sand runs out, the time has come. There's an appointed time. There's an allotted time. When all the sand passes from the top section to the lower section, it's appointed. It's done. So where is this cosmic hourglass? It's suspended indefinitely in the mind of God the Father. You say, how does he know when things are? Because he's God. So difficult for us to know. We, we wrestle and have anxiety every day, all day, about timing. Is this the right time? Is, is now the right time? Or is, will then be the right time? Will there ever be a right time? And God knows exactly. This is something that's never gone through the mind of God. When is the right time? You know, a similar phrase is used in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. I want you to also think back to verse 14 where it says arrested. I don't want to go too deep here, but that word arrested is in the passive form. And it could be pointing to human activity. It means to be handed over, which is a, is a common phrase in those days. To hand somebody over, to arrest somebody, and to present them to the magistrates. 
could be just speaking of Herod's goons coming and getting Jesus and then presenting him or handing him over. But in the Psalms, the divine passive of that same action, it points to God actually delivering his saints up to suffering and to death. And so here, I think it's actually pointing to the fact that not that John was just arrested by some local principality or municipality and given to Herod, but rather that God delivered him up, as he did in the Psalms, for suffering and ultimately for death. That God's actions is the emphasis of John being arrested. That God did this. That God allowed this to take place. The time had been fulfilled. It was time for John to go. It was time for him to decrease. It was time for Jesus to increase. What does this emphasize for us? When we think of the time coming and God knowing the time and God even in a sense delivering John up for arrest and death. What does it tell us? It tells us this, that God is sovereign over time. That God is sovereign over time. He knows when it's the right time. He knows when it's the wrong time. He knows when it's just the right time. You don't know when the right time is. That's something that we struggle with again on a daily basis. And yet God, the one who's omniscient, and his omniscience is coupled with his goodness and with his omnipotence, his power creates a comforting thought for us. He knows And it's under his control. You say, this is bad timing, Jesus. John was just arrested. Jesus knows the time was at hand. It was fulfilled. Have you ever misjudged the timing of something? It's the stuff of viral YouTube videos. Mistiming, right? Maybe it's as simple as a a kitten learning how to jump from one place to the other and, and trying to time it just right and missing and face planting to the side of the couch and spending one of its lives as it wrecks itself underneath the coffee table. Maybe, it's, maybe you know it all too well because maybe even recently you've mistimed pulling out into traffic, mistimed your brakes. Maybe you stayed up a little too late messed up your timing. Maybe you overslept. Maybe even this morning you were late. Why? Because we're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We don't know the the timing of all things. Even on a day such as today, can God keep up with daylight savings time? Who can? Hopefully Alexa and Siri. And so we lean into them, but God has no need for that. He's he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful. And on top of all this, he is good And so while we struggle with timing, we struggle to know when is the right time, when is the wrong time, and how to keep things all in order chronologically, this is not something that God has struggled with. I want to point this out for you this morning. You might look at your life and you might say, this is wrong. The timing is wrong for me this morning. You might say, this is wrong, and that is wrong, and the timing of this happening in my life is wrong. And I would encourage you to look to God and just say, I trust you. The one who knows all things, the one who holds all things in his hand to say, I trust you. And while I would have not chosen the timing, I would not have chosen how it's played out, the timing to get this illness or to lose this job, or to have this baby, 
So whatever it is, I would encourage you to trust the Lord. You see, you can trust God's timing in your relationships. You can. You can trust God's timing in your career. You can trust it in your education. You can trust it even in your evangelism. As you consider who your one is, and you say, when is the right time for me to share the gospel with them? I've shared it with them before. Well, should I do it again? Trust the Lord. Be faithful to his promises and to his commands. Can we trust God in our marriage? Yes, you can. Can we trust God in bearing and rearing children? Yes, you can. Can you trust God in your persecution? Yes, you can. His timing is perfect. His ways are perfect. goes on to say, Jesus spoke this, and the kingdom of God is at hand. I want to take just a few moments as we wind down and talk about this idea of the kingdom of God being at hand, this kingdom that Jesus spoke of. It's best to think of kingdom on three levels, three components of it, rather. And that's this, people, authority, and territory. If you're taking notes, people, authority, and territory. Historically, the Bible has talked about, and specifically the Old Testament, has talked about the kingdom of God. The people of the kingdom of God were first seen when God created Adam and Eve. They were the people of God. They were the people of the kingdom, in a sense. God chose them. He created them, and he placed them there in the garden. Several events take place, chief among them the fall But some time goes by, and what does God do? He he doesn't just have the people of God and Adam and Eve and then their race, but he also has, in a sense, in their race, but he also has Abram, later known as Abraham, and his descendants, also chosen as the people of God, part of the people of the kingdom of God. They're later called Hebrews and Israelites, Jews. That's in history, but then in prophecy, what do we begin, what do we begin to see regarding the people of God, the people of the, of the covenant of God, or the kingdom of God, rather? We see there is a remnant that's prophesied about. And this remnant, this people of God, what will they, what's, what's unique about them? It's that they will remain faithful to God. And so throughout history, in the Old Testament specifically, we see the people of God, uh, the people of the kingdom of God, are in Abraham, are in Adam, and are in the remnant. I told you that there's one aspect, that's the people, but there's another, and there's one after that, but the second would be authority. The authority of the kingdom. Every kingdom has authority. Every kingdom has a rule. And what is the rule of the kingdom of God, historically speaking? Well, we first saw the rule of God. We first saw the the rule of God in the kingdom of God there in Eden. God laid down the law. He offered all of these great and wonderful things to his people, the people of his, of his kingdom, of his covenant. But he gave them one negative rule. And what was that one rule? To not eat of this one tree. This is the authority of God clearly seen initially. We also see moving forward, we deal with Abraham and And the Israelites, we see God's dealing with the the Israelites as he rules them there at Mount Sinai. At the foot of that mountain, what does he do? He makes a covenant with them. He gives them his commands. And it demonstrates his rule, his authority over his people. And then speaking of the, in prophetic 
terms, the remnant, or the people of God in prophecy, what were they to have? What was said of them in Jeremiah chapter 31? That the law of God, what would happen with that law? It would be written on their very hearts. So we see the people of the kingdom of God. We see the authority of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. And now what about the territory? You can use your imagination now. Because with Adam and with that rule, where did that take place? It took place in Eden. So the first territory of the kingdom of God was in Eden, demonstrated clearly there. And then moving forward, it was in Canaan. It was in Canaan, the promised land. It was the home of the tabernacle, and then later the home of the temple in the holy city, Jerusalem. The place where the Jews recognized that God abode, where he dwelt with his people. This was the territory, in a sense, of the kingdom of God. And then finally, in that prophetic sense, It was in the restored land. It was in the rebuilt temple. The territory of God was in the one day, the new Jerusalem, and in the city of God where the temple would be rebuilt. So the Old Testament speaks of the kingdom of God. This wasn't new language. It was demonstrated time and again throughout Old Testament. And then Jesus comes to Galilee, and what does he say? The kingdom of God is at Hand. Why was he saying that? Because Jesus himself was the culmination of the kingdom of God, demonstrated in the Old Testament, and now visually manifested in the New Testament. Jesus himself was the people of God. He was new Israel. And even now he is those who are in Christ. The place of God, his territory, it's the new temple where Christ dwells. It's the one that was destroyed and then rebuilt three days later. Do you see it? Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the kingdom of God. The rule or authority of God in the new covenant, that's where Christ rules. Where does he rule? In the hearts of men today. So the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And the New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament passages regarding the kingdom are not to be taken literal but Christological. They find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Christ. He is the temple. He is the law. And he is the greater Adam. He's the better Adam. In other words, the coming of Christ transforms all the kingdom terms of the Old Testament into a gospel reality. He is the true people of God, able to keep the true laws of God and Dwell in the true territory of the kingdom of God. So when Mark quotes Jesus as saying the kingdom is near, he's saying that it's near because it's in him. The kingdom of God is him. And remember, we've seen this in Mark. We want to be the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased, and yet we can't be. We can't be, not on our own. And yet, if we are in Christ, we experience that, don't we? That that blessing that is pronounced upon Jesus, the Son, if we are in Jesus, it's it's on us as well. And then in the wilderness, in the temptation, what do we see? Not just in the wilderness where the baptism was, but in the second level of the wilderness where the wild animals were. 
and where Satan tempts Jesus, we look at that and we say, we want to overcome temptation. We want to beat that. We want to fulfill the law of the Lord in the hardest places, where, when it's most difficult. And yet we can't do that. Why? We can't do it unless we're in Christ. Why? Because the kingdom of God is fulfilled in Christ. And so if we are in Christ, it's fulfilled in us as well. So kingdoms have kings. They have territories and they have rules. And Jesus is saying, I am the king. And where I dwell is my territory. And my law is the law of the Lord. He's saying, the kingdom is now, it is here, and it is present, and I will rule over the hearts of men. And as he walks into Galilee, literally, the kingdom is now. And wherever the gospel is preached, the kingdom is now. Think about this. Jesus taught his disciples to pray in what we call, using this tool that he gave to them, called the Lord's Prayer. That's what we call it. And we say in that prayer, your kingdom come your will be done. In that moment, as we repent and believe the gospel, we're submitting, we're turning from our sins, we're turning from our ideologies, we're turning from our thoughts on what would be good and well, and we submit to the law of the kingdom of Jesus. And we say, not our own kingdom, your kingdom. Not our will, your will. And the instruction that accompanies the kingdom message that Jesus is preaching is what? Repent and believe. This is the message of the new kingdom. Repent and believe. I've talked about this several times in the study, but a person repents by turning from sin and yielding to God. By turning from sin and yielding to God, submitting to God. Say if somebody, when they are in total surrender, that they have repented of their sins. This is how we experience conversion. A new way of life, this radical change, we repent. The kingdom was so near that the people who were listening to Jesus could, could enter it at that very moment if they would repent and believe. And God, through Jesus, was establishing his rule over the hearts and lives of the people, crushing their idolatry and their pride, and leading them to this place of repentance. How could they enter the kingdom of heaven? How could they enter the kingdom of God? Repentance. And by the way, it's not just submission to the king that motivates us, although that should be enough, shouldn't it? Whatever God commands of us, it should be enough. But recognize this, that whatever God calls us to is best for us. And it's not a threat as much as it is an invitation. What God extends to us is what's best for us. And it promotes human flourishing. That's what's at stake at a lesser level. Let me ask you this. What would it look like for you to repent in your life? What would it truly look like for you to repent? What is there left to repent of? What rule are you ignoring? What law have you cast to the side in order to 
recognize some other ungodly pleasure or desire, or tendency, if you want to call it that? What would it take, what would it look like in your life to truly repent as Jesus is calling you to do this morning? I'll let that rest a moment. The next word there is and. Because repentance is not by itself. Recognizing your own sin, yielding some, or turning from it and yielding to God is not enough. Jesus is saying in addition to repentance is belief in the gospel. Belief in the gospel. Belief in what? The good news. For those who listen to Jesus, his preaching, that, that, that God was reigning and that it had arrived through his own coming, the coming of the Messiah. This is good news. And by the way, this is interesting. One, one commentator said this, that believing in the, in the gospel is more than an intellectual belief that the good news is true. But it includes a response that consists of both an acceptance and a commitment. I'm going to read that again. It includes a response that consists of both an acceptance and a commitment. We know of the demons that they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They know more than you do this morning, likely, that Jesus is is the Christ, the Son of God. We'll see in just a few weeks the demons were well aware of this. And they were afraid of Jesus and the power that he held. And so they knew who he was and they knew the truths about sin. And yet it's not enough just to know about sin and to believe in the person of Jesus. What's more, it's an acceptance and it's a commitment to the truths that are displayed ultimately leads to a changed life. And so Jesus Christ, as we've seen him, he contains in himself the kingdom of God. He is the people of God that could not obey the law of God. And he is the one who dwells in the presence of God. He is the one who rights the wrongs of history. This truth has huge implications for us today. This good news and the Old Testament is teaching us more than just this personal forgiveness of sins, but it points to more than just you going to heaven when you die. The gospel is a restoration. The good news is a restoration of relationships between God and man and the world. Remember, is there any better news than the fact that God is redeeming his, his creation? And not just for you, but for many others. And for this world that even groans now. This is good news. As we see God reigning. And that extension, that offer to us this morning. We repent of our sins. And we believe. And there's a change that takes place in our hearts. As we begin to submit to his rule in our lives. So young people. If you're a Christian here this morning, it is God who rules your life. It is God who rules in your hearts. And fathers, it's the same for you as well. If you truly repent and believe the gospel, it is Jesus who rules and for his glory and not for yours. 
in every aspect of your life, wherever you find yourselves, in whatever area, do you live in that way? It's a sign of a true Christian. It's proof that you are in Christ. You truly repent of your sin and of your standard for living. And you believe what is true about Jesus and what he has said. This week I read an article about two young men who had abandoned their faith because of the Bible's stance on uh, LGBTQ issues. As they fleshed out their reasons for leaving the faith, it became evident that what had happened was they had created a God in their own image. You say, you say that sounds unlikely that anybody here would do that. And yet, that's exactly what each and every one of us are tempted to do on a daily basis. You see, Jesus has clearly spoken of, of his identity and who he is. God's word clearly demonstrates to us the definitions that we are to uphold and the message that we are to teach, the message that we are to preach. And there are times when we look at that message and we say, I don't like this message. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem consistent with the God that I believe in, or in other words, the God that you have formed in your own mind. And what we end up doing is we break, when we, when we rewrite the word of God, or we create a, a God that seems to be more palatable in the 21st century, what we've done is broken the second commandment and ultimately the first. We've created another God. We formed a God and then we've begun to worship it. And we place that God that we have formed and created, and we place it over and above the God who has revealed himself to us. This is the worst kind. And this is what Jesus is calling us to repent of. He's saying, repent of your idolatry, of your false idols that you've created with your own hands, that you have fashioned and said, this is what God is like. Worship this God. This is what a real God would say. Worship this God when God says, I don't need you to redefine me. I have defined myself. Jesus says, the kingdom has come. I don't need you to, to plan it out. I don't need you to write it out. I don't need you to tell me the laws and the rules. He says, I am the authority. Submit to that. Submit to that. And so zooming out over this whole text as we close, remember this. That proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the true good news of the true God, that is the greatest calling that any of us can have in our lives. And as Christians, you're in luck because that is the calling that you have received. To proclaim, to preach this good news of the gospel. And that it supersedes all other circumstances, regardless of the persecution that we'll face. Regardless of the way that it is received. It supersedes all. Let's pray. Father, we truly thank you for that truth. That though in this life we face persecution and rejection, and it might seem as though all we have is Christ, that is exactly, that's precisely what you would want us to see. That all we have is Christ, and that's all that we need. 
And the call that we have on our lives as Christians to proclaim, to preach this message of good news that it is greater than anything that we face. It's greater than any temptation that would lure us to the left or to the right. It's greater than any persecution that would lead us to lower our heads and to submit. Jesus, we pray this morning that we as your people would truly repent and that we would believe that those who come in contact with us would hear this message, not just in our words, but also that they would see it in our lives and that they would sense and the gospel would be made manifest in their hearts. We pray that your church will be strengthened in the face of persecution, Jesus. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.